Bibles to Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15 as we continue our character study of Samson. We're going to look at verses 9 through 17 uh, this evening. And Samson uh, is going to defend himself here, but he's really defending himself from some retaliation that he basically brought on. And... Um, but nonetheless, he's going to defend himself uh, in this section of, of Scripture. And it came after Samson slaughtered the Philistines, remember, for burning his former wife and her father. And he retaliated, okay, and killing, slaughtering the Philistines. So they're going to come after him now. So that's why he's defending himself. But it's just kind of been an onward, uh, ongoing battle of retaliation between the two groups. But now, after what Samson had done, that last slaughter, the Philistines were looking at Samson as, man, he's a serious enemy. He's a serious enemy to the Philistine nation. And they had planned, they were planned, they planned to keep an eye on him, keep a close eye on him to watch him. So let's begin with verses 9 and 10 of chapter 15. And it reads, Now the Philistines went up, encamped in Judah, and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So the Philistines, they said, they're now they're, they're very worried about Samson. So what they do is they attack Judah in order to capture him. And the whole, the whole purpose, of, or purpose of capturing him is to eventually kill him. Now he was hiding in the town of Lehi, which was a part of Judah. Now the Philistines' attack on Judah... In the eyes of the men of Judah, it was kind of strange. So they ask him here, notice in verse 10, he says, you know, what's up with the attack? Why have you come? Why have you attacked us? And they said to, to the men of Judah, he said, because of what Samson did to us. Again, because of the great slaughter after they had burned, again, his former wife and father-in-law. So this was a serious blow to the enemy that Samson brought. Samson had finally given them a strong enough reason for the attack, and then to counterattack. When a serious blow is given to our adversary, the devil, he will react. And it won't take long for him to do something. The devil is not slow in his counterattack. When a person begins to spend more time and energy in reading and studying God's word, and they're spending time in prayer and in serving the Lord, the devil gets totally upset he gets furious and he will attack hard in an effort to try to stop this individual from again drawing close to god and he'll interfere with that individual's work then the person is going to experience all kinds of troubles different kinds of trials that will tie up his time that will tie up his efforts and make it a lot harder for him to spend time in the Word of God and in prayer and in service. And when a church starts to become effective in the work of God, reaching people with the gospel, seeing people getting saved, making God's Word known to them, then the devil will start to come and, get, and, and work against the, uh, that, that church, against the work of God. The devil will try to bind it, bind it, through disputes within the church, opposition from the outside the church, in order to hinder the effectiveness of God's rule over mankind, which explains many church problems. 
Verse 9 gives us the enemy's tactic here. Notice it says, they deployed themselves. They deployed themselves. In other words, they spread themselves out all over the place. This shows us several ways of evil that we need to be aware of. First, it says, by deploying themselves. This shows how evil would gain access wherever it could. Evil will expand and it will cover as much ground as it can. Evil is never happy with just taking a small area. It wants to spread itself as far and wide as it possibly can, and especially in our lives. Philistia didn't want any trouble from Judah. So it, it, it wanted control, total control of Judah. Secondly, to deploy themselves also shows how evil cleverly makes itself look larger. And it makes itself look more powerful than it really is. So the Philistines, they spread their troops out in such a way that it looked like there were really more of them than there really were. A small number will look, a lot, will look like a, a lot more if they spread themselves, spread themselves out in all the right places. So again, this gives those who are attacked a greater fear of the attackers. And it can make them more willing to give up and surrender because, oh man, there's so many of them. We can't, we can't deal with these many. And then the, 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 they will accept the terms of the attackers. Unbelief attacks just like the Philistines did. Evil wants to look impressive. It wants to look overpowering against our faith when it's really not. When it's really not that way at all. But it comes at you like a roaring lion, as Peter said. It wants us to think that all men defy the faith. You know, evil wants us to think that the Bible is full of mistakes and that there's plenty of reasons for unbelief when there's really none. So be careful that unbelief doesn't fool you out of your faith by making itself appear to be something that it's not. So the Philistines invaded Judah because that's where Samson was who had caused them such serious trouble after, the slaughtered, after the, he slaughtered the Philistines. And verse 8 says, remember, we left off. Verse 8 says that Samson went to live in a cave in the rock of Etam, which was located in Judah. Samson didn't go back to his hometown in Zorah, which was located in the, in the territory of Dan, because it was too close to Timnah and the slaughter of the Philistines. So he wouldn't be very safe from the Philistines in Zorah. So what does he do? He heads for a more secure location, something farther away from the Philistines' border and from the place of the slaughter of the Philistines, and also something more protective like the rock and uh, Etam would be. And even though Samson had found this out-of-the-way place to hide, his whereabouts were not totally unknown. So the Philistines didn't seem to know exactly where he was, but they did know that he was in Judah, just not where in Judah. So that's where they're going to attack, and because of the enemy, will always attack where their adversary is. So the lesson is this. The lesson, this lesson about where the enemy attacks is very much like when the enemy will attack. We learned, about, we learned above that the enemy will attack when they are attacked, and they will attack against their work. And here we learn that the enemy will also attack where the opposition is. The enemy will attack those who have been a problem for the enemy. The enemy will go to the source of the attack and try to bind the attacker, as we'll see the men of Judah bind Samson. 
So again, the enemy will bind the attacker to keep him from doing further damage to the enemy's kingdom. Now, the church should be one of those places where the enemy will want to attack. But a lot of the work done today that's called church work is, is weak. And it's ineffective to, so that it doesn't stir up the enemy the slightest bit. And a lot of churches don't do enough to challenge the control of the enemy. And the evil compromise, they, they, they compromise so much that they're more like a partner in their evil than an adversary of the evil. And that's exactly why the devil leaves them alone. You know, if we're doing nothing, whether corporately as a church or individually, if we're not doing anything and, and we're not being effective for the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan doesn't have to bind us. He, you know, we're not being effective. All right, the church or the individual has made itself or themselves useless. So Satan has them right where he wants them. He says his, to his cohorts, leave them alone. They're not doing anything. They're not being effective. Don't rustle their feathers right now. Just leave them be. But let a man or a woman of God or a church or other Christian ministry take strong stands against sin like we need to be doing today. The devil's going to go there with his ropes as we see the men of Judah do to Samson. They're going to go there with the ropes. They're going to try to tie up the worker. They're going to try to stop the work. They're going to try to stop that church or that individual from prospering any way that it can. And when the men of Judah asked in verse 10, okay, what they were doing there, it showed that they didn't know about Samson. They didn't know about Samson. They knew where he was because later we'll see that they went to him and they tied him up and they turned him over to the Philistines. You see, the men of Judah knew where he was, but they didn't know about him. They were aware of the things that he did, but they weren't aware of the fact that Samson had caused some serious problems for the Philistines, something that no Israelite uh, was brave enough to do. So here was a man, <clears throat> Samson, who could do something about the oppression that Israel was experiencing uh, from the Philistines. But Judah didn't know this. They didn't know about Samson. The one man, Samson, that Judah should have known uh, about out of all the Israelites was the one man they didn't know at all well. Judah's ignorance of Samson is many times similar to man's ignorance of Jesus Christ. In every age, men are so ignorant of the one, Christ, who could be their Savior. We saw that when Jesus came to earth. This ignorance was very obvious. In John 1.10, it says, When he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Now, men often know something about Jesus, even as the men of Judah knew something about Samson. They may have heard about Jesus, and, and, and many will know some details about Christ's existence on earth, but they're terribly ignorant about who he truly is. They don't know him as Savior, the Savior of men's souls. They don't know him as God manifested in the flesh or as King of kings and Lord of lords. And this ignorance is the worst kind of ignorance man can ever have. And like in Judah's case of their ignorance of Samson, it will cause the people to dishonor what they should be honoring. It will cause them to rebuke what they should be revering. And it will cause them to forsake what they should be following. 
And in the end, it can, prove, it can prove to be eternally disastrous for them. So when the Philistines told the men of Judah that they had come to arrest, in the King James it says bind. So when the Philistines told the men of Judah, hey, we've come here now to your land to bind Samson. It says the, 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 the men of Judah, they were helpful to the Philistines, which showed a great lack of their character. You see, they were ready right away to help the Philistines by capturing Samson for them and delivering him into the hands of the Philistines. Look at verses 11 to 12. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you have done to us? And Samson said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. So what these men did, these men of Judah, what they did shows how strong the Philistines' yoke was around the neck of Israel. The spirit to fight the evil oppression in them was, was all but completely gone. The Israelites had given up, and mostly because they weren't trusting in Almighty God. The job of freeing them, the Israelites, from the oppression of the Philistines would be twice as hard because they didn't have the will to fight the enemy. So when, so when the 3,000 men of Judah came to Etam to arrest Samson, the, the men of Judah, they, they basically scolded Samson. Look again at what, what they told Samson in verse 11. They said to Samson, Don't you realize the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing to us, Samson? So the men of Judah accused Samson of causing trouble for Israel because he dared to oppose them. He dared to oppose the rule that the ungodly Philistines had over Israel. And it was a rule that the Philistines had no right to exercise, and it was a rule that was very oppressive. By Samson slaying the Philistines, it started to shake the cruel yoke of bondage that the Philistines had on Israel. Samson was helping Israel and opposing the Philistines. But what the Philistines told the men of Judah about Samson, treat, how, how Samson treated them, made it sound like Samson had done them a lot of harm. And so, but they should have been very glad that finally some Israelite had been brave enough to take on the Philistines triumphantly. And it should have given the men of Judah hope for the future. And they should have recognized that in what he did, that what Samson did, God truly had raised up Samson to be their defender. But instead, they, the men of Judah, acted offended. They acted offended that anybody should bow down or, or that anyone shouldn't bow down to the rule of the Philistines. Like they told Samson, hey, don't you know they rule over us? And how shameful it was for them, the men of Judah, to get down on Samson, to rebuke him what he did it was really the men of judah who were the ones who needed to be rebuked so after samson answered their question by telling them there in verse 11 hey i only did to them what they did to us and then they said to him in verse 12 we have come to tie you up samson or or, or arrest you and hand you over to the philistines now samson's response to the men of Judah wasn't what you'd expect because he didn't fight with them. 
He said, we're coming to tie you up and deliver you to the Philistines. He didn't argue with them. He didn't fight them. He asked them one thing. The only thing he asked them was, hey, guys, promise me that you won't be the ones who kill me. So Samson's reaction here was a lot different than the way he'd been reacting prior to this. For the first time, Samson was behaving in a wise way, when, and he looked at the whole situation now carefully and skillfully. And he's looking at it with a level head. And he guides this whole situation so that in the end, he's able to attack the Philistines with another serious blow without upsetting his own people who were at the moment very upset with the things that he did to the Philistines. Samson didn't argue with, his, with the men of Judah about tying him up, which was a smart move. All he asked them was, hey, don't kill me yourselves. And Samson had a good reason for this request. First of all, by not killing him, it would stop a fight between him and his own nation. And obviously, it would have taken a lot more effort to try to stop 3,000 men from killing, uh, killing Samson. Samson didn't want to fight his own brethren because it was the, these were the men who Samson should be delivering and not killing. Unlike the men of Judah, Samson knew who their real enemy was. The Philistines were their enemy, not the Israelites. So Samson lets the men of Judah tie him up when they agreed, Samson, we won't kill you. Secondly, it was a good reason that, that Samson let them tie them up because it gave Samson an advantage in attacking the Philistines. Because, see, when Samson was tied up and the men of Judah would take him to the Philistines and, and turn him over to them, the Philistines would be at ease. Oh, he's tied up. You know, he can't do any harm. And, and they would be at ease and they would let their guard down. And this would give Samson a good edge over them. Again, it's the element of surprise when he would suddenly break free of the ropes and he would attack them. Thirdly, the re good reason for, them, for him to be uh, allowed to be tied up is attacking the Philistines without having a major battle going on, all right, with Samson and his own nation, which opposing tying him up would have probably produced, it would make it easier to get the support of his people later on. So with no injuries to heal from a war between Samson and his own people over tying him up, you know, the men of Israel would be more ready to accept Samson as their judge later on. They would see the good sense of Samson's behavior in this whole situation. So it's no accident that after he slaughtered the Philistines that the scripture says in verse 20, he or Samson judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. So again, this attack on the Philistines pushed Samson into being judge of Israel. So Samson's wisdom in this incident would encourage his acceptance by the people. Look at verse 13. So they spoke to him saying, no, Samson, but we will tie, in other words, no, till we won't kill you. So they spoke to him saying, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So like I said, when the men of Judah, what, uh, when the men of Judah, what they did here, it showed their wickedness. Now, in tying him up and, and delivering him to the Philistines, they may have felt like they had done something good. 
something helpful, also in promising Samson that they wouldn't kill him. But what they did is really, is, it's really wicked. And we'll see, in a, we'll see it in a couple of ways. First of all, they were still his murderers. All right, they were still his murderers, even though they wouldn't kill him. They were going to turn, they turned him over to someone else to be murdered. Paul said in Romans 1.32, an accomplice is just as guilty as the one committing the crime. Secondly, they were trying to keep the peace with the Philistines. God's people, was, they were trying to keep peace with the Philistines, their enemies, in, in the worst of ways possible. In the worst ways possible. How? By betraying a brother. What these men of Judah did is clearly similar to how Jesus was treated and how he responded to that kind of treatment. First of all, even with the wickedness of the men of Judah, Samson, with a lot of grace, willingly suffered shame and reproach at their hands in order to be their deliverer. In the same way, Jesus, in his abundant grace, also willingly suffered disgrace and condemnation from the hands of those men, that, so, of men so that he could be you know, their savior. Secondly, Samson, the one who could help Israel, was tied up and delivered to the Philistines, a foreign power who are the oppressive rulers of Israel. In the same way, Jesus, who was the one man who could deliver Israel, was tied up and delivered to the Romans, a foreign power like the Philistines in Samson's day, who were the oppressive rulers over Israel at that time. Third, in delivering Samson to the Philistines, the Israelites professed that the only ruler of their land was a foreign power. Again, in verse 11, they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? And in the same way, in delivering Jesus to the leaders of Israel, indicated that the only rule of their land was a foreign power. In Pilate's court, they said, We have no king but Caesar. And then fourth, just like the Israelites didn't kill Samson themselves, they would turn him over to the Philistines to do it. And the Israelites, in Jesus' day, they didn't kill Jesus themselves, but they turned him over to the Romans for them to do it. But Samson, though he was tied up and delivered to the Philistines, hey, he wouldn't be tied up for long by men's ropes. His own people tied him up, but it wouldn't be for long. Samson was operating under a power that had no difficulty in breaking those ropes. And we have a great illustration of the ropes of man having no effect on the man or the woman operating under the power of God. I think of Daniel chapter 3, when King Nebuchadnezzar was so angry because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't fall down and worship the gold image that was made. And Samson told, uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar told him, if you refuse to bow down to the world's images, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace of hatred and bigotry. And then what, then what God, what God is there that will be able to rescue you from my power, King Nebuchadnezzar said. And then can, they wouldn't bow down, they wouldn't worship, worship the idol that was made. Then Nebuchadnezzar commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than usual. Then he ordered some of the strongest men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. 
So they did as they were commanded. They tied up the three men and they threw them into the furnace, clothes and all. And then suddenly, King Nebuchadnezzar jumps up in amazement and he shouts out to his advisors, he says, hey, didn't we tie up three men and throw them into the furnace? And they said, yes, your majesty, we sure did. King Nebuchadnezzar shouted, look, I see four men down there and they're untied and they're walking around in the fire unharmed and the fourth looks like a god. Those three men were walking around as though they were in a palace and not a fiery furnace. The ropes that they had been bound with, that they, you know, those were the only things that had been affected by the fire. And then King Nebuchadnezzar came as close as he could to the door of the flaming furnace, and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out of there and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stepped out of the fire, and they didn't even have the smell of smoke upon them. See, the, the, the worldly ropes that bind men have no power over God's people, and we need to always remember that. Look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. And then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. To Samson, man, I think, to Samson, that had to be an awesome experience. But to the Philistines, man, it had to be a scary experience to see Samson free from those ropes. And when the Philistines saw the men of Judah bringing Samson to their camp all tied up, oh, they shouted triumphantly because their hated enemy was now in their power, under their control. At least that's what they thought. But they weren't very happy for long because all of a sudden those ropes fell off of his hands. And the word in the Hebrew means melted or dissolved as if melted in a fire, and Samson was free. God's enemies, sooner or later, come to that day when all of their evil schemes and their evil plans will suddenly fail and leave them exposed to God's judgment. And when we look around today, it seems like Christianity is tied up, like the church is tied up, and like the church and Christians are headed for destruction. We read church attendance is declining. People are, are leaving the church. Churches are compromising with the, contra, the cultural trends of the time. And I don't know if you've read some of the recent headlines. I mean, unbelievable. The, uh, one headline was, was, it said, was Jesus trans? It says, the Bible holds clues that the Bible says, yes, he was. The, the, the dean of Cambridge College said, Jesus could have been a transgender. The Huffington Post religious section said, the first gender man was Jesus. The Church of St. Paul, the Apostle in Manhattan, New York, is featuring a new art exhibited title, exhibit title, God is Trans, a Queer Spiritual Journey. That's what's happening in the churches today. That's what people are being fed today. Man, we, the Church of Jesus Christ, better stand up against it. Not cave into it like a lot of these are, and, and so-called evidence being presented, and people go, oh, really? I didn't know that. 
because you don't know the scriptures. One day, God is going to have something to say about it. He's letting them have their way right now. One day, there's going to be a sudden loosing of those chains. And righteousness is going to win out and rule while evil bites the dust. And this truth should encourage every believer in our day when the ungodly seem to be in control of just about everything. Samson's freedom from his rope when the Spirit came upon him definitely emphasizes the freedom that the Holy Spirit gives. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. There's liberty. And this is illustrated both in our Savior's life and in the lives of the believers. When it comes to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he willingly submitted to being tied up. He didn't fight. He didn't argue with those who came to tie him up. And then he was delivered to death. And, but, but we know death couldn't keep him bound because God loosed him by his spirit and he rose from the grave in victory over all of his enemies. The believer is often bound, tied up by their circumstances. And he or she who is trying to serve God, you know, they, they get bound and, and they... It, you know, and they feel like they're limited to what they can do. But when the Holy Spirit empowers you for service, the bonds of those limitations, they fall off, and the believer is free, and they're empowered by God to serve. And when Samson broke free of those ropes, he went on a rampage against the Philistines. And man, as a church, we need to go on a rampage against the enemy. Verse 15. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it and killed a thousand men with it. Notice, the moment Samson was freed from his bondage, he didn't go, oh man, this is great, you know, now I'm free. He grabbed a jawbone and he went to deal with the enemy. What a great picture that is. He didn't stand around when he was freed. He attacked the enemy immediately. You see, God doesn't set us free from, from bondage and other enslaving situations so that we can just stand around. He's freed us so that we can serve him. Every salvation experience is a loosing of the bonds of sin. And it gives us freedom to serve him. A lot of people don't seem to get this truth. They just kind of stand around not willing to do much of anything for Jesus Christ. We need to take a look at Samson as our example here and in many other cases in Scripture and apply it to our own lives because it's no different. There are Philistines to slay. There are evils to fight. God's work is to be done and there are people who need to be delivered from the bondage of sin. And the bonds of sin are loosed to free us to serve our Lord Jesus Samson went to work right away when those ropes were off of his hands. We need to do the same thing. As with all of Samson's work, there's always something, but again, there's always something that, that is there to spoil the work. Here, the, the, the thing that spoils Samson's work is the jawbone of a donkey. It was a strange weapon or tool, however you want to look at it, this was a strange weapon or tool for fighting that, that Samson used. And it's often used as an illustration of how we ought to use whatever we can, whatever we, we can to serve the Lord. We're told that even though what, 
what is in our hand is nothing more than a jawbone of a donkey, yet in dedicated hands, it can do a lot for the Lord. And the principle is in this, applic in this application is true. We may be very limited in what we have to serve God, but in dedicated hands, man, we can do a lot. But in Samson's case, we need to remember that what he had in his hands was unclean. Remember the forbidden law of a Nazarite? Or the forbidden uh, things for a Nazarite? And even an Israelite to have in their hand? What they had. It seems that this was characteristic of Samson all through his life. His disregard for his Nazarite status. Remember, an Israelite, as well as a Nazarite, was not to touch the carcass of an unclean animal. Look, Leviticus 11.8. So here again, we have to qualify Samson's service in case people use this uh, as a way to justify the wrong methods in serving God. And here, this just shows us that God often blesses us in spite of us. Sometimes we use unholy methods, but you know what? God overrules and he accomplishes his purposes anyway. But... In using unholy means, we lose the blessing and the reward of service. And in the long run, we'll corrupt and, and, and cripple our ministry. Samson, Samson did accomplish a lot in his attack on the Philistines. His attack wasn't wrong, but the way he did it was wrong. And that's, imp that's really important to, to, to keep in mind. You know, that... There's a right way and a wrong way to do God's work. What Samson did was more, it was more compromise that only encouraged him to compromise even more, which eventually ended his life and his service as well. Remember, I think of David in this. Remember when David wanted to move the ark back to its proper place? Remember, God had given specific written instructions for moving the ark. But David said, hey, you know what? Let's just put it on a cart, put it on, a, on an oxen, and we'll just, we'll just move it to where it's supposed to be. And, and remember, when, when, the, when the oxen stumble and the cart began to fall with the ark on it, Uzzah reached out and to try to, to stabilize it, and God killed him. And David got angry. You know, here I am doing the work of the Lord and, and you know, we're, we're doing what God wants us to do and, and we're taking it where it's supposed to go and, and, and Uzzah, you know, it, it starts to fall off of, the, off of the oxen and, you know, to keep it from falling down and, and getting all smashed up. We were, we were doing a good thing by holding on to it to keep it from falling off. But God told David, there is a prescribed, there was a prescribed way to do this. There were rings on the, on the, on the cart to, car, to car, carry it, and you were supposed to put those poles through those rings. But a lot of times, ah, oh, you know, we don't have to follow instructions. We don't, as long as we're doing what we need to be doing, as long as we do, you know, what, what, what we feel God, you know, we can do it however. No, God, God said, David, there is a prescribed way for moving the Ark of the Covenant. And when David went back and did it the right way, he moved it successfully. Because again, there's, there's, there's only one way that God's going to bless what we do. 
and it's when we do it his way. If Samson would have done things the right way and he would have tried to obey the Lord the way he should have, then his work in delivering Israel would have turned out a whole lot different. And the same with David. Uzzah wouldn't have died. A surprising part of this great slaughter of the Philistines is that Samson fought the battle by himself. Think of that the 3,000 men of Judah, Israelites, didn't help David at all. That must have blown away. That must have been uh, uh, blown away what Samson did. Those, th- those men must have just said, wow, you know, one guy, one guy wiping out all these th- thousand Philistines. 3,000 men stood by and didn't help at all because they were too afraid to get involved themselves. So they deserted Samson. So it's not surprising that, that why the oppression of the Philistines lasted so long. It's because the Israelites wouldn't get into the battle. And this kind of situation happens, you know, in churches a lot. The people do not get involved. They sit in the pew, they watch what's going on, they watch others in the battle. I guess it never dawns on them that they should enter into the battle. Jesus said, we are soldiers of Christ. We're soldiers. Samson serving alone reminds us that if you would serve the Lord, you are often going to have to do it alone without encouragement and without help from those around you. But you know what? We can't let that stop us from doing God's work. No one will serve well who doesn't know how to serve alone. So after the slaughter, look what Samson said in verses 16 and 17. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was when he had finished speaking that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramoth-Lehi, or pile of bones. David said, I have, I have slain a thousand men. No word in there about God. Samson didn't say anything about God's help. Or thanks to the Lord, I got the victory over the enemy. When Sam, what Samson said in verse 16 showed his poor spiritual condition and that God wasn't very much in his thoughts. But his life shows us it's possible for a, po- a, a person to be involved in God's work but not be devoted to God. And again, a lot of people are like this. They may be active in church. They may hold important positions, but their spiritual life is very poor. They don't have much of a spiritual life, if any. They don't read the Bible very much. I mean, it looks great under their arm. They may serve, but using worldly ways. They may have faith like Samson, or may be of faith like Samson, but if they are, they haven't grown much in the Lord. And their spiritual condition doesn't match the important place, their important place in the church. So as we study the character of Samson, again, may we learn these things. And, you know, and I, and I say a lot about the church, what it doesn't do, and the condition of the church. And it's true. I'm not picking on the church. All right? It's, it's, it's something where the church needs to wake up. And, if it, and it fits us, you know, whoever we are. You know, we, we need to see that. And we need to take a stand, and we need to be involved. Again, that's why God saved us. He wants to use us. And you know what? 
we need to be used today. We, we look around and we complain about what's going on and we see it. We say we can't believe it. I thought I'd never see it in my day. And then I have to ask, what am I doing to help? What am I doing to stop it? And yeah, hey, we might be small, but I tell you, look what 12 men did in the Gospels. Turned the world upside right. 12 men who were willing to give their all. And that's what we need to do is give our all in however God decides to use us. Father, we thank you so much in your word, Lord. And, and Father, you know that, um, Lord, we speak about the church a lot, and I, I bring it up a lot, Lord. But again, that's the purpose of the church. That's who we are. Father, we are the, the, we are the difference, Lord. We will make a difference, God, as it did in the, in the, in the New Testament, God. The church made a huge, a huge difference. We see it in the book of Acts. The Father, the churches were overflowing and people were getting saved and the gospel was being preached. People were standing up against the enemy, God, and that's what we need to do, Lord. So, Father, we have all that we need. We learned that from uh, Galatians this morning. We have the fruit of the Spirit. We, ha we have all the tools, everything necessary for the battle, God. And yes, as a soldier, we will get wounded. But God, you will patch us up. You will, you will heal our wounds, God, that we can get back into the battle. So Father, just speak to our hearts, Lord. Encourage us and show us, God, that we are so mighty in your hands, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.